0: smoke damaged a fire took place in the basement down in California and just filled the entire place and so they couldn't just rebuild and move in they had to tear off they had to tear everything down to the studs and as we got tearing down we realized that this house was built probably in 1912 and needed new everything it was the two wire type of of wiring They didn't have the three so they needed new wiring if you understand that Uh, They needed new walls. Everything was lath and plaster. And when we were pulling everything off the walls, we realized that there were staples inside the redwood beams. And my dad looked at me one day, he was the contractor, I was his little worker. And he says, Brad, I need you to pull every single staple off every single stud in this entire place. And I looked at him and went, all right. And it's 7 a.m. And this place is, it's a big house and there's a lot of staples. And he says, pull it off, I need it done by two. And so there I am, four beams in, uh, it's like noon, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to finish, it's 105 degrees, and I start to sweat at 73, and, and so I'm just dripping sweat, because of the oldness of the house, we had to wear masks, and goggles, and gloves, and thick jeans, and long shirts, so it's even more, I'm just a sweaty, smelly mess, dusty, and miserable, and I'm pulling staples out of studs and I'm hating every minute of it and I start wondering to myself why am I doing this this is terrible work someone has to do it but why am I doing it it's just gonna get covered up by insulation drywall mud texture paint no one's gonna know if I miss a staple dad why am I doing this and later he ended up telling me because the insulation would get all ripped and frayed and it would compromise everything if there were staples there, so finally I get it. But halfway through, I'm miserable and I'm wondering why because I see everything through sweat and steamy filled goggles and I'm just hating it. Have you had that kind of experience where you're sitting somewhere, whether it's on your fourth spreadsheet in and you're wondering, why am I doing this? Or maybe you're stuck in traffic for the third time today And you're wondering, why do I take 15th where the bridge is going to go up and down every single time? Why am I here? Have you ever sat and asked that uh, existential question while you're sitting on a park bench somewhere? And you're wondering, why am I here in general? The question why, we, we ask a lot. And usually it's, what's our place in this world of ours? As we look through Genesis, and as we're starting this, the second week of the constant series, and if you guys, did you bring your books? If you didn't, we might have an extra two or three copies in the back. If you weren't here last week, and you didn't get these, we can supply them for you if you want one. Uh, but we're, we're going through this, the constant, the heartbeat of hope within scripture. And this week, uh, we're on Cosmos. If you have your books, it's on page nine. As we look through the story of Genesis, the question why begins to come up. Why were we here in the first place? And it's an interesting question. Why? It's not the how question. Why is a deeper question. We can ask how for days. And oftentimes we look at this Genesis one and we instantly start asking how, how did God make this? Well, he spoke, well, how, and we want the processes, we want to know when, we want to know facts. But that passage wasn't necessarily written for us to know how. How and why are different. I can tell you how you got here. We can talk about my cursory level of biology, and I can explain how people are made. You probably don't want to be that. Uh, And if you want to, we could talk afterwards. It would be awkward. But we could talk about how all day long. And there's things that you know how, and there's things I don't know how, but we can talk about how. How is different. Genesis 1 isn't about how. Our culture likes to look at it and say, this is how we became, but that's not what's going on. We've looked at scientific methods and industrial revolutions, and we've developed how things were made, but it doesn't answer the question why. The story in Genesis 1, we read it from the message today because we're so used to the other way. The story of Genesis 1 is more about why we are here, What's our place in this place? Why were we created to begin with? I like to view how Genesis 1 came to be by, uh, it started with oral tradition, right? They didn't really write things down, they spoke things to the next generation. So I envision a little girl crawling into her grandfather's lap uh, uh, through a campfire you know, for Flintstone days or something, and she crawls into grandpa's lap and she looks at her grandpa and says, "Papa." Uh, why are things like the way they are and grandpa does what grandpa does best and he tells a story and he says in in the beginning God created heavens and the earth and then he goes through and starts explaining to his little granddaughter why things are the way they are and why we are here Little granddaughter isn't asking for details of what came first and then what came third, and she's not confused by there was light on day one, but the sun and stars were created by day four. She's not lost in those details. She's learning why God put us on this planet. And it's in the creation story, the why question begins to invite us to see ourselves as caretakers of a world that belongs not just to humans, but to God. And in that story, we see our calling through the lens that can dramatically change our relationship with the earth and its resources. When we find out why we're here, it changes the way we look at everything around us. God created the world and then put us here for a specific role as caretakers of it. And in our, stu- in, in our series, we have that picture that's on the front of your bulletins, and it's right here. There's the four moves throughout Scripture. We have creation, we have disruption, we have hope, and then we have culmination. And in the creation side of this, in creation, we see God's vision uh, for the cosmos, and then we see humanity's relationship with it. In its perfect iteration, the cosmos is always seen as God's temple. When I say cosmos, I mean the universe, because when God created heaven and earth, it was everything. God created the universe. And it's always been seen as God's temple. In other ancient Near Eastern narratives of creation, God is always looking for a resting place when he's creating. That's why he begins to create. In other religions, it's the same type of thing. He's looking for a place to rest. And so in the very first words, God spoke into darkness. He spoke into chaos and began to put things into order. And he began to find, build himself a place to rest. In other religions and other uh, uh, philosophies of that time, God always rested in something that was built for him by humans. God never rested within creation because creation has always been seen as bad. But as you look through the story in Genesis one, as you begin to see the poetic rhythms to it, and God spoke, and then it ends that section with, and it was good. You start to see that God is not building a creation that is bad. He's taking chaos and bringing function and order to it and calling it good. And in the seventh day, after he creates humankind, he says, it is good, and then what's he do? He rests. God created heavens and earth to be his temple, to be his resting place. And it's not rest as if it's a bad thing, like he stops doing anything at all. It's rest as if he's done with making order from chaos, and now he's taking a rest from it. He's still in charge, he's still living into his role. It's sort of like when you have, uh, we're, we're in the election season, if you haven't turned on your television or listen to the radio, there's people arguing a lot, so we must be trying to vote. Uh, but you have these people that are working their hardest to get to the White House. And once they get to the White House, they take up residence, they rest there, but is their job done? Some might argue yes. But now they begin to live into their role of what they've been working for. And so with creation, God has been moving and creating and making systems in the earth. And finally it gets done and he takes up residence with it and calls it good. And God rests. His temple, a place where God rests, is the earth. In Isaiah, he says this in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And then he asks the rhetorical question to Isaiah, are you going to build me a house? I have this. I rest in the creation. This is the temple of God. Resting doesn't mean he stops working, but everything in creation has its right place and that's where God finds its rest. And in that rest, we find our why why are we a part of this why did god create us to be here in the perfect iteration before sin and the disruption happened this is why we're here we're created in god's image man and woman created in god's image in the image of god that he created them male and female he created them he said go Go, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 2, verse 15, God says it this way, the Lord took man and woman and put them in the garden and said, work it and take care of it. We were created to care for God's temple. We are in some ways God's temple hands and we get to cultivate it. We get to build it up. We get to care for it. But somewhere along this line, we've lost this charge. God gave us a proper way to interact with creation as caretakers, as people who cultivate, as people who build up. We've translated that word subdue, meaning that we're going to put it under our foot and suck and zap all the resources from it. But the original intention of why we are here is to be gardeners, to allow this place to flourish. Not just creation, but you and I allow people, because we are a part of the creation to flourish. That means there's a proper way to treat everything, including animals. In Proverbs 12, it says, a righteous man regards the life of his animal. In Exodus 20, God shows us that Sabbath was to be practiced not by just humans, but by animals. In Deuteronomy 23, we're told what to do with our sewage. Uh, God sets, us, sets apart this way of, of living that allows the soil and the land to rest every seven years. There's a proper way in God's intention for us to live in harmony with his temple and allow it to flourish. Every seven years, he says in Leviticus, allow the land to go dormant, to go fallow. And whatever grows, you give the land its own Sabbath. And whatever grows on it, let it grow. And if it produces fruit, then allow that fruit to be taken either by animals or by the poor. God sets up economic systems so you and I can live at peace with each other. It's this idea of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, debts are forgiven. I would love that. Every 50 years, debts are forgiven. If you own land, it goes back uh, to the original owner of the land. Everything hits zero. Everything is reset. What God's trying to do is build into our nature a way of relating to the earth. It says the earth is his, and we are caretakers of it. The earth is his so that he can find rest in this place, and we are caretakers of that. The cosmos, our universe, the animals, the people within it are intended to be the temple of God, where God hangs out. But humans found a way to foul this up and we live in this part of the world today. We see disruption all around us. If the line for creation is here and then it takes a free fall down. That's the disruption, and we see it everywhere. Sin took over. In Genesis 3, just right after the creation, we're familiar with the story. Eve eats the fruit, goes, convinces Adam to do the same, and then they have sinned and then brought sin into this perfect garden and fouled it all up, and then disruption happens. They thought they too can be like God. Because of their move, everything that was meant to bring joy and peace and happiness brought pain. Childbirth in the curse, says, would be painful. Work would be endless. There was a break in harmony between man and nature, but there was also a break in harmony between man and woman. In Genesis 3, when the fall happens, uh, before this, they were partnering in all regards. They were together, they were a team. Now in Genesis 3, five verses after the curse, the first thing we see Adam doing is coming into an adversarial role between him and Eve. The first thing he does in Genesis 3.20 is he names Eve, which you think, no big deal. It's better than yelling across the garden, hey you, I need you. Or guys, if you haven't learned this, don't yell woman. That's not a good thing. She she needed a name. It's a good thing. He named her Eve, which means source of life. But in the Near Eastern culture, when you name something, you name something because you own it. And so when Adam comes and names Eve, yes, it's good. She needs a name. All source of life will come from her because she's the first mom. Uh, But there was also this hint of brokenness in there. Now Adam has moved his way up and he's become an oppressor or an exploiter, ownership, and it trickles down throughout all creation. Creation now wasn't seen in harmony with man. It was seen as something to be dominated and something to be subdued instead of something to be cared for. Adam and Eve at this point lost the why they were created. The break in relationships between man and woman. There was a break in relationship between man, woman, and land. Thorns and thistles would happen. So now their work became endless and their work became painful. And they worked and worked and worked and the fields were actually working against them. In Genesis 4, you see Cain, who's trying to bring forth a crop so that he can sacrifice something and he works endless hours and then brings what he has and it's not enough. It's not good enough. There's a divide between people and the land and there's a divide between people and animals. In Genesis 1 and 2, the serpent decides it's going to talk to Eve. And are we ever shocked that Eve doesn't flinch and freak out when a snake talks? I always think that's a little funny. The snake talks to her and she's like, oh, hey, Mr. Snake, how are you? But there's a break between humans and animals. We don't know what the relationship was like, but then it it gives us the, the, the hint that animals are now afraid of humans for rightful reasons. Our decision to subdue and dominate didn't stop with just the person next to us. It stopped with all of creation. The disruption was happening everywhere. And as for this thing of Sabbath where we would rest, where God would rest, because of the disruption, the creation and its ideal was taken away and the Sabbath was forgotten. It was no more. God had lost his place of rest. There was amity between everything on the earth and God was not able to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. He lost his place where he can rest. The disruption broke every single place of harmony that we see and that we don't see. This is where we live today. Disruption is... Something that goes way back to the beginning of time. We think it started in recent history, but it's something that's been happening for a long, long time. We have just gotten used to it. We're used to seeing the way we treat other people, we're used to seeing disruption. We don't call it anything new, we call it Last Tuesday because it's become so normal for us. We see it in our own city. We see disruption by people living on the margins of society, not able to live. They live on corners. They live under bridges. They're pushed aside because they have a mental illness or something. That's the disruption. We see it that the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. We watch videos of African-American males getting shot. We see that on the news weekly now we see riots in Charlotte. I turn on the news Friday night and I listen to a, a story about someone being, five people being killed just right up the street in, in, in Burlington. Everywhere we look, we are reminded of the disruption that is all around us. There are portions Our prisons are overcrowded. You walk down Market Street on a Tuesday afternoon like I did this last week and you can feel the tension in the neighborhoods. There is a massive disruption all around us and unless we're looking for it, you don't see it. But sometimes we see it and we don't even notice it because we're so used to it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 40, How long must we sing this song? You too made it popular. How long must we sing this song and wait for God to come and make everything right? We feel disruption now. He felt disruption when he was writing this. This is something that the disruption has been happening for the longest of time throughout history. We're living in the disruption. And the disruption comes because we've forgotten why we are here to begin with. Why we're here to be stewards, to be caretakers, to be cultivators of God's resting place. Not only his temple, his earth, but cultivators of each other. Cultivators of you and me, the person next to us, the person behind us. All of us who are made in his image. Which means that when we see any kind of injustice, be it economic environmental or personal it should affect us deeply because it's not just injustice against a person it's injustice against God himself who made this person an image bearer a temple hand a caretaker and now they're being marginalized now they're being killed now they're being treated unfairly injustice is a religious it's our calling thing. It's why we're here. To see injustice should affect us. But as we learned last week, when we see disruption and we see that there that doesn't seem to be any hope is usually when God begins to work best. God likes to, God's address, as Dallas Willard says, is located at the end of our rope. When we think, when we think things can't get any worse is usually when he steps in. We think that we're abandoned here at the story, at the end of the story, in the middle of the dis- disruption. We think that this is where our story ends, but the bottom is the beginning. People usually look at how everything's broken and conclude that this must mean that God's not there or that God doesn't care or that he's powerless or that he's never going to change anything. But in the pattern, that's just the start for our God. The prophet Joel writes this in, 3, 6, in Joel 3.16. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for Israel. In verse 17, then they will know that I, the Lord God, dwell on Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade it. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. And the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and water the valley of the Acacias. What Joel is looking at is he's looking at Jerusalem as it was then. And Jerusalem was under siege. It was in the middle of exile. And Joel is looking forward to a day where God would bring everything right again. And Jerusalem will be actually living into its calling. Joel was having hope in the midst of desperation, in the midst of disruption. Joel was saying that, uh, that Joel was seeing that Jesus was coming. He didn't know that what Jesus was going to look like. He didn't think that Jesus was going to be like the pictures we see with the long flowing hair and the beard. He didn't have this picture of Jesus, but he had an idea of the roles that Jesus would fill. And that Jesus would bring rest back into the land. That he would restore things back to the way they were. Joel was remembering why they were there in the first place. Joel caught a glimpse of the hope of the way things were and where they are now. And hoping for what they actually could be. Our hope is not about what we can do to restore creation. Our hope isn't found in you and I recycling more or composting like we used to. That's not, or, like, or we should. Our hope isn't found in what we do. Our hope isn't found in eliminating CO2 <laughs> gases. That's not our hope. Our hope is found in Christ who sets everything back right. We can compost all we want. We can recycle and shame everyone who doesn't recycle as good as you and I do, or as good as you do, because I can probably do a better job. I get confused when I see three trash cans. Uh, but we can't. It's not that we shame people. That's not the hope. Our hope is found something in, in a place where Christ begins to restore things back to the way they should. This is the gospel This is our why. We've limited the gospel to make it a transaction between heaven and hell. But the gospel is far more reaching than that. Its gospel is about reaching into the universe, the cosmos, that was broken. In Genesis 3, Paul talks about the brokenness in Romans 9. He says, earth is groaning because of its brokenness. It's not only you and I who feel it, but the earth groans. The gospel is good news to us, that we can reclaim why we are here and that the earth will be made right again. In Colossians, Paul says this, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross, by reconciling us and then things on earth and then things in heaven. Where do we see brokenness? Ourselves on earth and in heaven. God's, God, Jesus, the death on the cross, the resurrection is bringing those places back together again is reconciling all things. Our hope is that Christ is putting back together these broken places, but he has to start somewhere. Where did Colossians begin? He's reconciling you and I first, the broken places in our lives, the places of disruption that we feel, our own personal environment, if you will, that is broken. What's he do? He speaks into it and offers peace, offers reconciliation and then from there, we join in with what God is doing with everything around us. But we can't join in fully until we've experienced it for ourselves. The gospel is far-reaching. It's never-ending. The reconciliation of all things will come. But first, he begins with you. It, th- it means that our first step is to find peace within ourselves, is to find Christ. That's the only way. That's the first part of the gospel. And then out of that, we start caring for the world around us. It doesn't mean that we all have to go join Greenpeace and become activists or shame people. It means that we join in with the first solution and then allow God to take us to the next solution. The starting point is allow the restoration to begin in your lives. Our efforts to restore, our efforts to care, our efforts are for justice are good, but they're shallow if they don't if they don't begin in the place of Christ. Because of Christ, we speak up for the brokenness around us. Because of Christ, we speak up for the marginalized. Because of Christ, we move in to the place where there's racial tensions. Because of Christ, we speak up when things in the economy aren't fair. Because of Christ, we bring reconciliation. We take two broken things and bring them back together. That's the hope that we have. It's not found in another program. It's not found in another walk or protest. It's only found in Christ. Our hope isn't found in doing things. And without this understanding, without the proper starting points, all we do is serve a a kingdom without serving a king. Those things of taking care of the environment, those things of justice are good. They're very kingdom like. They're things that Jesus would enjoy, they're things that we say Jesus is for. But when we serve a kingdom without serving a king, we don't really have a kingdom. We have ethics, we have nice thoughts. But when we serve the king that's on his throne and we start chasing down him and Christ, then the kingdom ethics follow. We serve a king and then the kingdom follows us, not the other way around. The hope that we have is that Christ will be putting things back together and that's the culmination that we're coming to. Our hope, our serving the king and living the kingdom points to all things being made new again and the culmination and the end where everything is made right. Look with me in 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 Revelation 21, one through five, if you wanna write that down in your book. Uh, John on Patmos writes this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. It's kind of a weird thing that he's watching. Paul, John inhaled a lot of paint chips when he was little or something. But he's talking about what he's seeing. He's seeing the old way of doing things. The brokenness, the disruption go away. And Christ is building a new thing where the disruption and the brokenness are healed. And then he says this thing that we kind of go, oh, that's interesting. He says, and there was no longer any sea. In his way of thinking, they were afraid of water. They were afraid of the oceans. They were afraid of deep lakes. That's why they were freaked out on Galilee when it's an eight-foot lake and the waves are getting too big and they could swim to shore because evil things live under the water. Their sources of greatest fear were found in the sea. In Revelation, uh, the, the beast comes out of the sea. And so when John writes this, and there was no longer any sea, what he's saying is there's no longer any presence of evil around. The source of evil is gone. The idea that this might be disrupted again by a serpent or a snake won't happen because there no longer be here. There's no longer any sea. And then verse 2, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain, for the old has passed away, and the new has come. It's interesting, God's dwelling place is back where? Where is God going to rest again with his people? We become so focused in our lives of getting out of this place. There are entire theologies that are focused, entire churches and denominations that look for a time where we can evacuate and get the heck out. But which way is God coming? Uh, He's coming here. God's dwelling place will be here all through creation, all through scripture. What we see over and over is God making every single effort to be with his people. Jesus comes to earth to be with his people. Yet we do everything we can to get out of here. Our why we are here is to make this place something where God would like to dwell. Can we do everything to make the kingdom come? No, there's some things that God is going to have to come back to do it himself. But our why, why we are here is to care for this place and bring rest to the places around us. The first thing that, that is said to Jerusalem when they rebel is remember the Sabbath go back to the Sabbath we've forgotten what it means to rest we've forgotten what it means to make this place a place where God would enjoy his rest and in the culmination of it all what we see is that God dwells with his people once again and he has rest he's making everything new Culmination is the good news that goes beyond our efforts. Culmination is the good news that goes beyond our sorting of our waste. Culmination is the good news that goes beyond driving a Prius. Culmination is the good news that you and I can be whole again, now. Culmination is the good news that you and I can have a relationship where we are not trying to dominate one another. Those are things that can happen now in this place and when we start living into that hope it becomes contagious and we live into that hope because we're moving somewhere the story of scripture is moving and it's all pointing to the culmination of all things where christ is going to make things new again there are certain things that we can do for many of us our our days look like this we get out of our house we get into our car We turn on the AC or the heater because it's cold outside. If you're lucky, you drive to your job where you have a parking garage, and then you get out of your car, you go to your office, then you get back into your car for lunch, and go to another climate-controlled place, and then you get back into your climate-controlled car, go back into your climate-controlled office, and then go home at the end of the day to a climate-controlled home. How many of those steps were outside? Hardly any. One of the first things that we can do to see ourselves as caretakers of this world is to spend some time in this world. Go for a walk. Get your hands dirty. Plant a tree. Plant some bushes in your front yard. Walk around Green Lake. Climb Rainier like that guy just did. To see yourself as a caretaker means to actually get in this environment where you are supposed to take care of it, get to know it, and you would be shocked on the ways that you see God in it. Our senior pastor, Richard, seems to have his best devotional times when he's hiking mass amounts of miles somewhere else. God can speak to you in the places outside, and the first place where you find your why is probably to spend some time outside. A second way that we could uh, find our why is to speak up for the people that don't have voices. When we see injustices, and they're very hard to avoid now, when you see them in appropriate ways, speak up. Give voice to the voiceless. Be on their side. Use the privilege that you may have to stand up for somebody to step in and say this isn't right and it's not right because this isn't how we were supposed to live this is not correct doesn't matter who they are And the last part of it is simply to become aware aware of everything around you don't put your head in the ground and hope that things will go away don't try to escape this place engage how are we living How are you engaging in the world around you? Are you living in a way that brings rest to people? Are you living in a way that brings rest to those around you? Are you living in a way that brings rest to yourself? What's your part in this? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that through history uh, you are moving and that the disruptions that we see around us do not catch you off guard. Uh, you are very aware of them all. Lord, we, we thank you that at the bottom of our disruption, where we think that there is no hope, is the place where you are, in fact, moving most. And God, may we see how you're working in that. Lord, may we not focus on escaping this place, on getting out of here, on being taken away, but Lord, may we see our roles in bringing your kingdom here. Jesus, you prayed, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we have that same prayer for the world around us. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in Seattle as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in Brad as it is in heaven. May it come in our lives. May the restoration of all things be found in our hearts so that we can become agents of restoration to the world around us. It's in your name we pray.